I'm Charlie Melcher, founder and director of The Future of Storytelling. Welcome back to The False Podcast. My guests today are Samantha Gorman and Danny Kenanzaro, co-founders of the art and game studio Tender Claws. As a creative team, Samantha and Danny combine artistic sensibilities with true intellectual rigor. After they met while studying art and literature at Brown, Danny went on to receive an MFA in conceptual art from UCSD, while Samantha received her PhD in media arts and practice from USC. The spirit of exploration is a fundamental driver for Samantha and Danny. They've made it their mission to work at the furthest corners of the storytelling map, breaking into new mediums before they're fully formed. When the rules have yet to be written, the tools have yet to be invented, and the paths have yet to be charted. This can be a daunting task, but in doing so, they've created genre-defining work in interactive fiction, augmented reality, and virtual reality. Their latest work, which we'll explore in depth in our conversation, is called The Under Presents. It's a novel combination of virtual reality and immersive theater, where virtual characters are controlled in real time by live actors. During the pandemic, Tender Claws even mounted a live production of Shakespeare's The Tempest within the virtual world of The Under Presents. Danny and Samantha are constant innovators who have made vital contributions to the evolving world of storytelling. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Samantha and Danny, I'm so excited to have you on the Future of Storytelling podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having us. We're really happy to be here. Yeah, thank you. I thought it would be nice for us to start with when we first got to know each other, which was back in 2015, I think it was, uh, when we showed Pry, uh, one of your first pieces at the Future of Storytelling. It was one that I personally really, really love. I was very, very excited about and became one of these works that we really um, championed over and over again at FOSS. It, it was a finalist for our prize. We put it in our Sensory Stories exhibit at the Museum of the Moving Image. We showed it over and over and over again because we really, truly loved it. Uh, or, or I shouldn't put it in past tense, truly love it. And so I thought I would just ask you to describe Pry a little bit and tell us um, how you came to, to make that piece. One of the things that we do, which we'll probably talk about later, is we kind of listen to the medium that we're creating stories in and create work that's natively for the medium. We have an experience with looking at kind of interactive storytelling. So when the iPad came out and it was kind of, there was a lot of discussion about the future of the book and the iPad and the future of reading, we wanted to create a um, a, a kind of combination um, hybrid book, cinema and and game that really actually took advantage of the affordances of tablet media and tablet reading, where the gestures that the um, reader did had um, significance to the psychology of the story. So, you know, if it's a story about losing sight, the reader's literally pinching, you know, using the Apple vocabulary, pinching open the eyes of the main character, um, you know, um, scrubbing through Braille on the screen. And it's really playing against against that, um, the vocabulary of tablet reading. I definitely had that feeling of seeing the birth of a new medium. I almost like what someone must have felt when they opened up the first illuminated manuscripts and looked at them and had never seen a book before. You know, sort of the sense of magic or the possibility of, of storytelling in a whole new way 
Uh, it reminded me also a little bit of, say, the invention of the novel, which was perhaps the first time that you could get into the inner life of that character. You, you, as reading, you could hear their voice in their head. And I just thought it was such an original for, use of the, the medium uh, to tell a, uniquely, a unique story only possible in, in, on that platform. Yeah, so our first project together ever actually was um, uh, kind of more in the early days of, you know, Flash, but it was a hybrid um, reading of the Book of Kells, which is illuminated manuscript, which is um, a type of form that I studied. Um, the Book of Kells was made in 100 AD by, you know, scribes in Ireland, and essentially, if you really look at the design work of the Book of Kells and the materiality of the um, page and what the scribes were doing, it's all about interlinked um, nodes and, you know, kind of codes and meaning and, you know, the, the weaving of the Irish knot, which goes through the Book of Kells novel, which is also written in hypertext for early online. Um, going in and delving into the different designs. So we're very much interested in that. Um, what is the forefront of reading in the contemporary age? It seems that you're always trying to play with new technologies, with new media at an early enough stage where you can still uh, help to define or experiment with the grammar of that medium. Why is that so interesting to you? Yeah, it definitely feels like when new mediums kind of like come to prominence, you see a lot of people grabbing and trying to translate things from existing ones onto the the new medium. And I think one of the things we just do really well at artists is work the other way, where we're kind of looking at trying to find the unique features of a medium and then build from within those sets of constraints. Constraints are extremely useful for us, especially as a small independent studio where we don't always have like unlimited budgets. We we welcome constraints on all fronts. So something like Pride, the two of us made ourselves and we kind of ended up coding and filming and doing all of it. My research is essentially an intervention into the early cusp of these mediums before they get codified. Before there's these like kind of rigid structures, um, both, you know, design and, you know, economics, you know, you name it, put onto the medium, how can we push it further? And how can we like show that it's its own unique instantiation of, you know, like the vocabulary, the grammar, the medium itself, rather than um, you know, there was a lot of talk in, for instance, VR, you know, the anxiety about the frame, you know, and adopting cinematic vocabulary. And that is useful to a certain point. Like, I think you can really borrow the vocabulary and the, the gesture and design principles from other fields. But you really need to look at, again, the affordances and constraints of the material you're working with. And maybe that is partially coming from our training in conceptual art and like, you know, materials studies is we kind of bring that into new media. So from Pry, you then went to do, I mean, I think there's been a number of projects. The sort of next big project, I believe, is the, the Under Presents. And that's like a whole different paradigm of VR. Please explain to our listener what that is in case they haven't done, had the pleasure of doing it. I can attempt to give the the quick summary. The Under Presents is a, a funny project because every time we try and explain it, it it feels like it's just reaching out into all these different spheres. But um, it started out as a collaboration we wanted to do with the live arts collective Piehole, which has done all types of kind of experimental theater and different um, mixed media performances. And so in our work on virtual virtual reality, we noticed that there was a lot of overlap between theater and storytelling and spatialized storytelling and um, v VR. And so this project was explicitly started as 
a way of doing something that drew uh, from immersive experiences and theater. And so it tells the story of a ship that's kind of caught in time and the characters on the ship are forced to on loop, just like live this one hour fateful journey. But then you as a player also become kind of caught in the same time loop and the characters can break out of their pre-recorded tracks and become inhabited by live actors that we have performing kind of like all over, uh, jumping into your experience as a player, taking over the, the NPCs and interacting you and pulling you aside for very special, unique encounters. There's six hours of single-player content, there's a multiplayer space, and it was released as a game. So that meant we had to make it scalable. It's sort of more of a living world that kind of evolved over time as actors could jump in, in and out, and between different rooms or instances of players and kind of, you know, lead them on these um, story-driven encounters that matched the world-building that was happening. And to do that, we cast and worked with about 18 different um, actors who were like, you know, ahead of their craft um, in immersive theater. Some were mimes, some were um, dancers, some were, was an opera singer slash clown. Because we had players too that like, like it formed like a niche, but like very passionate community around the game. And especially when quarantine happened, like a lot of people started spending tons and tons of time in there. Like, so the, the actors got to know like pretty detailed some of the, the players and the game has a unique element in that the players can't actually speak. So the players do all their communication via gesture or you can do magic in the game so they can create spells so they could start to identify themselves by like, I'm the player that like turns a rose gold and like holds it up to the sun. And they, they developed like little interesting ways of communicating and yeah, start to form these longer term kind of like... Storylines. And then like the players would eventually like get... Like actors would marry certain players virtually and like all these like elaborately crazy storylines would come out of it. And it was just... It was nuts. Yeah, you um, described it as like almost playing Dungeon Master. Yeah. Where like you aren't fully scripting the story, but you're guiding and shaping and kind of like trying to keep it from going too far off the rails back towards kind of like the original the vision. General, yeah. yeah. Sense of the world. I mean, you started to build this way before the pandemic started, right? So this it's not like this was something you thought of as a response to that, but it certainly benefited from it because people had a lot more time and this was a way to be social in a sense as well as be immersed. Yeah, I think there was something... Because of the way that games come out, you know, usually they get most noticed when they first launch. I do think it may be benefit in terms of players, but I think the bigger benefit was to the existing community and the actors themselves. Um, so like it was very sudden, you know, we had a hub where we had, you know, all our um, headsets, actors could go and like take different, you know, shifts and perform in. And it was a social, it was really a social place for me to meet with them and, you know, us to hang out. And then suddenly they were remote, safe performing from home. And that like, um, they, they, I've heard that that wasn't as big a disjunct because they still felt connected in sort of the game and the universe, um, you know, to, e to each other. And we would meet in virtual, you know, virtually to rehearse. And we built out like enough of this infrastructure that we kind of immediately started to think, what else can we do with this? Like, how can we take this and make it into another type of immersive experience? And so that's where Tempest, which was our, our latest project, kind of grew out of. And, and so our audience can understand it. In Tempest, you are stepping into the world of, of Shakespeare and there's a certain number of attendees or, or guests or participants. I'm not sure what, what word you like to use. And then there's a live actor 
who is controlling also a virtual character in that space. And that group goes through a, a series of scenes together. And the guests, the audience, have a limited palette of gestures or things that they, that they can do, but they have agency in these scenes and interact with the actor. So the, the Tempest is borrowing some of the, I think, the vocabulary and learnings from the under in terms of, you know, virtual performance and, and co-presence, but it's also, it's very a unique show. It's sort of a different format in that, um, you know, as you're, as you're alluding to, it's, it's a scripted show for the most part. The, I made the script free and available online so you can see where all the different um, layers are for, you know, improv. And my, this is my script I gave to the, you know, actors. Um, there's about 11 people. And at, at this point, you know, I was working with them for almost, you know, like eight months. So there's a lot of like agency and trust for them to um, have different moments where they're adapting the script to their personalities and strength. And there's definitely like when I was writing it, I had to think about how they, how the different people might do that. Um, and, you know, and where those openings are. And it's actually pretty, I think, flexible. But um, the general, you know, the general story of Tempest is that it's very meta. Again, um, you're kind of uh, quarantining, you know, uh, in the Hollywood Hills during lockdown. Um, you're with an actor who's talking about a show that they were going to be in, a, a reimagining of the Tempest that never actually aired. And you as the player, as in Prospero's Spirits, which is similar to the play, um, help to create the magic and bring the show to life. And you go through all the imaginings with them of the show that never was. And, you know, it's really kind of a meditation, you know, on art and vision and the role of the audience. Because, you know, the in the final monologue of um, Tempest where... Uh, Shakespeare says, you know, the essentially Prospero is sort of bowing out and saying this cannot be completed or envisioned without you, my audience. And it also speaks to the audience agency throughout the story of, of uh, our production of The Tempest as well. So when you wrote that script, it's both dialogue and moments of interactivity or, or giving agency to the audience? Or is it, or is it really just a written script of words? to be spoken. It's definitely both. Like there's dialogue. A lot of the dialogue is adapted from the play. Um, and there's certain pinnacles. And of course, like the act. So we have some people who are trained MFA Shakespearean actors to people who have never done Shakespeare. So that, that, that's kind of what I mean with that anchor dialogue has a range of stretch depending on the performer um, and working with the performer. And then around that, there is a lot of dialogue that is partially, you know, like improv, um, but improv in a way that like in implicates the audience and makes the audience feel seen and enacting and assigning them roles to enact and to create the vision of the play. So one thing is our actors in these projects are not only like in charge of like the movement and the speaking of the character, but they're acting as like the lights manager and the like the sound cue person, like they are controlling the whole sets they're in. And so every scene that they're in, they kind of behind the scenes have a palette of funny controls that they can like cue the moment where like they spawn in as the harpy or they can cue the moment where everyone's swords go from being super light to like heavy and just drop to the ground. They have powers over the world that are like pre-scripted, but then become almost like an instrument that they can play. In the final scene, the actor is literally conducting a storm. They can, with their hands, summon down lightning. They can point at trees and have them rip up out of the ground and fly off into the sky. And they have full control over this, like an instrument, where they are playing the scenery as well as the voice as well as that. So that is 
a fairly unique thing to the medium. Wow. Wow. I heard you mention a term before, Samantha, that was liveness. And I w- wish you'd explain that a little more and, and how you, you look for that. For my purposes, I guess, um, stepping back a bit, I was interested in testing the theory, the hypothesis, and this is, you know, back in the under, of what the edge of um, attention and immersion is for the audience when you're skirting up into what you think is pre-recorded and then it becomes live. And you realize it's charged with that energy and all the focus is on you and you are seen. So I was interested in, like, what does it mean to break out of the non, um, non-playable, like, non-player character NPC loop into suddenly feeling like someone is inhabiting the space with you. And that charges it with a different energy just by the, you know, the presence of, of that experience. Um, and even the direction of the body and the gaze, like we did a lot with them talking about mime work and different mask work. Um, so for me, like, liveness isn't necessarily hampered by, you know, fidelity or movement, but it's also comes across in the voice and in the presence, and even in the way that the body is angled, you know, towards you. Um, And it's doing things that are, uh, you would recognize as human, you know, in the subtleties of movements, you know, that is, uh, it's very interested in like the difference between what's, you know, AI movement and what's human. Um, And when we first showed this piece at Sundance, uh, like their audience, because it was a very new concept of having live actors in VR, I thought it was, you know, elaborate AI, um, but then they would, some of them, but then, you know, they would, you would throw something at them and would catch it and address you, you know, which is very different. I think, and I think from the outset, we were really interested in not doing like a, a VR theater where it's like a group of people addressing like 300 people. We wanted these very small encounters because it was really important to us that the actor, like so much of the benefit is the actor being able to respond to your actions as the player or your actions as the performer, and being able to address that. And that's why we got so many improv actors, too, is that element of the liveness, not the, not the more abstract, like, I know there's someone out here performing this live, but it kind of might as well have been recorded because, like, my interaction with them is they are not responding to my actions. And so we were really addressing a kind of, like, intimate type of liveness. The, um, if we're comparing to Sleep No More, it's the moments where you're pulled aside by a character and given like a very personal monologue. And then the moments that are more on loop, we played with just being pre-recorded. And so we, in these projects, uh, especially the underpresents, yeah, played with where is that line and like how does it feel when something transitions from pre-recorded to live? Let me ask you, do you think that this hybrid of live and virtual that you've been experimenting with is a model for moving forward? Is this going to be something we see a lot more of? It's something I've thought a lot about in the past, you know, number of months. And and for us, you know, it's, I think there's a lot of expectation that we'll build a platform or this is what we do. But for us, you know, as artists, we're always moving and thinking and there's always so many things that catches our interest. In the way that people want to commercialize it, I feel like it's a little early. Um, However, I think that the principles of combined it's about human connection, right? And I think like the larger question is really going towards something where it infuses, you know, our digital, you know, or remote lives with more moments of liveness or human connection, you know, in whatever form or medium that necessarily takes. And I realize that's a little of a murky response, but I'm not entirely sure 
I think we've come up with creative ways to, to scale it. And I'm really happy with what we did, but I, I don't know if that will be something that um, larger, you know, companies will, you know, want to want to do. Do you think the audience is ready for it? I, I always think about when there's an evolution of new, new forms, one part is getting the tech right, one part is getting the content right, uh, maybe training, in, in your case, training the actors. But there's also that period of getting the audience acclimated or, or the people formerly known as the audience, the players, the participants. I think it could be. I think a lot of people who tried the under not really knowing what it was were hooked on it for like well, you know, a long time. And specifically Tempest. Like I think it's, under is yeah. like a little bit of like a harder sell just because it has a more complicated entry point. But something like the Tempest where you can jump right into a story, we had, yeah, all different like types of people going through it from different backgrounds related to games, some related to theater, some that had never put on VR before. And like, it's been very popular among uh, a really wide. So yeah, I think the audience is definitely there for the. Again, I, I love that Tender Claws is this kind of um, medium whisperer. Like you, <laughs> you sort of come and listen and, and try to figure out what's, what does each medium want to say and do? What can it be? How do you listen to it and, and tease out its inner nature? It raises the question for me, is, are, there, are there specific media that you have been most in love with? Are there ones that, that seem to hold some of the greatest potential that you've gotten to play with? So in terms of being, you know, a writing student who studied, you know, writing for digital media, and this is in also, you know, literary theory, um, what's overlooked in the importance of the hyperlink and more of just rhizomatic thinking in terms of, you know, writing and storytelling and what that kind of positional shift has changed about, you know, composition or how we consume stories going all the way back to early internet. And I think that it's so transformational and it's still, you know, an underpinning, you know, philosophy or a process and a lot of, you know, what you see as interactive writing today. Building off of that, I think we put that into effect in our process as well, where a lot of the projects we work on start with an idea and we kind of like follow it to see where it'll lead rather than having a very specific goal from the outset some of the, the most important features of something like the Under Presents like, came out in the last few months of development. Like the, the whole communal magic system was something that happened at the end and became like an underpinning of it. And that was from following what works and following what comes from the other thing. Because I think, I think we don't presume to, to know what works in these new mediums when we start. Like there, it is one of those things where you can guess, but it's not until you actually like learn by making things in them that we feel like we're able to kind of come to... The, the more interesting end products. The other thing that I, I also want to say is that so often people who are experimenting with new media are coming at it from the tech side and lose sight of the importance of making it meaningful, of telling stories that connect to uh, the human experience. And I feel that you've always done such a great job of not losing sight of that, of making sure that there is still a really great story attached to your experimentation or your your discovery of, of what this this new medium can do. And it's part of the reason, again, I think that that you are Tender Claws is such a poster child for a future of storytelling uh, because you really do keep uh, a very strong eye on the story. Yeah, I think... I think we're often motivated to try and push beyond kind of that tech demo phase that, that happens like necessarily in like all the, the new mediums. But um, 
But yeah, something like VVR, we want to push it into like a two-hour story, not just like a, a five-minute like quick thing. We want to show that this can be like a more, it can also do more in-depth, yeah. Or our AR project that we did, which was um, called Tendar, was about a fish that you would like feed emotions to. And so it was using not only AR technology, but also like um, sentiment analysis on people expression and object recognition, which like each alone were used in a lot of kind of like tech demo ways. And we tied it into this story where you were teaching uh, a pet about what it means to be human, to feel human emotions and made a whole arc where based on what emotions you're feeding your pet fish, it goes through kind of like a rebellious phase and then an existential phase where it starts to question whether it's just a product of its inputs. And like, yeah, each of our projects, we do try and push past just the like cool mechanic, cool interaction and into something that it's a cool mechanic in service of a bigger arc. I really, again, appreciate the effort that you put in to discover the potential of new, me new media, new, new platforms, new technologies, in creating beautiful pieces with them help to establish the, the potential, the, the, the grammar, the organic language of those media. I, I have to say, when I started The Future of Storytelling, it's literally one of the things that I thought very much about, that, that we can either leave these new technologies in the hands of you know, big corporation or, or, or just not even being very conscious about it. And rather, the goal of FOST was to find and bring together the people who would open up these doors and give direction, give heart, give, give vision to how they would evolve. And I think it's really important. I think that history will look back and, and appreciate your efforts and, and say that it was... Um, uh, meaningful to the evolution of different of different media. So, chapeau and thank you. <laughs> yeah, we should say thanks to Future of Storytelling too, because I think uh, you curated Pry in the when it was a finalist for the festivals, and I think that was kind of our. We'd been doing a lot of work at smaller location-based things, and that was like our first big release and kind of first big festival where we got to show it to like a wider audience of people interested in. I think it's interesting because Pry at that time, um, you know, I submitted it to different venues, film festivals and games festivals, and eventually games festivals picked it up, but no one else, I think, actually, that was one of the first showings because no one else knew how to, I think, uh, evaluate it. Yeah, it wasn't a supernatural fit at, like, traditional film or the, the literary world, and so, like, something like Future of Storytelling was, like, the yeah, perfect venue for that. Thank you again, and I really appreciate your participating today in the in the the podcast. But but even more so um, for participating in FOST all these years and uh, and all the great work that you do. So great to see you, Samantha and Danny. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm so inspired by the work that Danny and Samantha are doing to chart new paths in the world of storytelling. If you'd like to learn more about their work, check out this episode's page on the Future of Storytelling website at fost.org or through the link in this episode's description. There you'll find a full transcript of our conversation as well as links to some of my favorite Tender Claws projects. Thanks for listening to the FOSS Podcast, produced in collaboration with our talented partner, Charts and Leisure. If you haven't already, 
please subscribe to our show and give us a great rating or review. And if you know someone else who might enjoy our show, please be sure to share it with them. I hope you'll join us again in a couple of weeks for another deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, please be safe, stay strong, and story on. Thank you.